How's everybody doing? Yeah. It's like every week, you know. It's my, my Matthew McConaughey moment. How y'all doing? Yeah. Oh, man, it's, it's, it's so amazing to see uh, a team. Go, this is, a, I think, the, the largest team we've sent to, to Costa Rica. Is that right, Seth? Probably the, the biggest in terms of the, the people that... And just, this, I mean, it is a sacrifice. The people that, that raise money, it's not easy uh, to, to say, hey, I'm going to be spending a week in Costa Rica. And they're like, surfing? Um, and, but they're really going to, uh, one, they, I think they go to one of the poorest counties in all of Costa Rica. So, I mean, it's like 75% unemployment. Um, and then they go to a, a ranch and serve in that area. And uh, it's not what you think. You know, sometimes when you think about Costa Rica, it's like, oh, it's the beach. It's, you know, it's like here. Um, where they're going, it, it is not. Um, and the, 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 to see the hands and feet of Jesus uh, go out in that community, been there several times, it's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, and we, we really will be praying for you guys. And we just had uh, a bunch of students come back from Passion Camp. Um, I, unbelievable to have, I mean, I, I always look, you know, and I think I, I remember coming uh, to the beach and moving here in uh, 2010 uh, and starting the church with like nine or 10 people. Um, and just to see, you know, 50 plus people go to, just, just to go to student camp uh, is humbling and amazing. Um, I've been uh, taking kids to camp for probably 12 years. In the last couple of years, I haven't gone to camp. Um, and I, I'm kind of jealous, to be, to be honest. I love camp. I'm one of those crazy people. I probably will go next year just because I'm like, I can't help myself. Um, I do. I love it. It's, and for some people, it's like, oh, my goodness, how does he love camp? But there is something about being at camp in the middle of the week, and you're, you're really witnessing lives being changed. And I know we can be cynical about camp, like the idea that you got saved about seven times, you know, when the guy said the thing, and it was real emotional, and you're like, you did it again, I got to go forward. Um, and then you give your life to Jesus, and you rededicate your dedication that's been rededicated to Jesus one more time. Um, but honestly, uh, these camps, uh, you know, the, the partnership that we've, we've had with Passion City Church and Passion Conferences over the years and what they do and just centering everything around Jesus, kids' lives change. And I, I, I have these moments when I'm at camp, like, I, I feel bad for the other people. Like, people feel bad for me, <laughs> you know, being, you know, 50 and going to camp. And I'm like, I feel bad for you uh, because you don't get to experience something that's unbelievably faith-affirming, to watch students go from death to life, for your own heart to be changed, to realize that uh, we're here for a reason and a purpose bigger than just the grind of every day and uh, the things that seem, can seem meaningless and sinless. Like when you ever ask that question, like we were talking about with the life course, you know, why are we here? What, what, what's going on? Well, it becomes very clear at camp. Now, you do see all this life change, and again, you, you, it's not all perfect at camp, but a lot of amazing things happen, and kids are pretty amped up coming back from camp. And then what? You know, what, what do you do at that point? And what, what does life look like? Because they're going to have to re-enter probably one of the toughest times and cultures in terms of opposing, you know, Christian ideology, opposing what we believe as, uh, as Christians and followers of Jesus, and I just started thinking, you know, what about us? Because that, that's who we are as the church. I mean, we come and we worship together. We open the word of God together. We sing these songs that center our heart around what we believe to be what life is about. We were created by and for Jesus. So what does it look like to live life in the world? And that's one of the, the, the other themes that you see in 1 John, especially in 1 John chapter 5. Like, what does it look like not, not only to... Define your faith and have assurance that you're a believer. Because 
John's not telling you how to become a believer by saying, hey, you need to love people well. You know, love God and love people, and then you'll be a believer. He's saying there's going to be signposts along the way. If you're wondering, it's not just about the theology or the morality, but there's a spiritual heart level thing that happens that creates this belief in this theology and this change of life in the way that we live our life. And in this, he, he opens up some things, because I have to ask that question, how do, we, how do we enter into the world? Like, how do we, and when I say the world, I mean, I think that can be a Christian term. Like, we're all, you know, when I look around the room, there's, I'm, there's probably a lot of followers of Jesus in here, and then some people that are, you know, trying to figure it out, and then outside these walls, there's plenty of people that, that don't know Jesus here in Jacksonville Beach, and Neptune Beach, Atlantic Beach, Ponte Vedra, Jacksonville proper, the whole city, there's plenty of people that don't, and we're, I always say this, I hate to say that we're so different than everybody else. Honestly, we're not. We're all sinners in here. We're all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. There's, we can't put ourselves on a pedestal and look down on the rest of the world because we're all in the same position. The only difference between, between me and anyone else is I am clinging to the anchor of hope, Jesus. I, I, I've, I've, in my heart, in my soul, I believe that I have found the reason, the meaning, and the purpose of life. I'm not better than someone else. I'm, I'm just lined up with the truth in a way that's changed me, and I want the world to know it. So as we look at this passage, I just was thinking about this idea of coming back from camp. We all have that experience in life, whether it's camp, whether it's just experiencing something at church and, and then going back to what life looks like on Monday. Because it can be, the, the discussions can be hard. I mean, it's easy to get shut down when it comes to the way that we live our lives differently than other people, or should, or that we should look different than other people as, as followers of Jesus. And at what point do we, what, what's, the, what's the fine line of being noisy on Facebook that we're, we're saying things about why we're better as followers of Jesus and opposing what everybody else is saying and full of grace, but also full of truth, not denying what I believe. You know, I was out uh, surfing the other day, and I was surfing with a friend of mine, and this other guy paddles up, and he happens to be one of the, one of the best, in his category, one of the best surfers in the world, uh, won the world title a couple of years ago in his category, and he paddles up, and we're all just having a conversation, and I thought, man, I'm so cool, you know, just sitting there, I'm like, this guy's like one of the best in the world. You know, he's asked me about my kids. It's pretty awesome. And we just started having this conversation, and I just was kind of in there. It's just the three of us. I'm like, this is so cool. And then the conversation turned into um, a kind of like a complaint session about all the surf camps that are all around the pier. And like, you know, there's this camp over there. I'm trying, you know, I'm on this, you know, sweet wave, and there's a kid on a foamy that I'm about to destroy. And why, don't, why can't they? There's 20 blocks of beach in either direction. Why can't they go here? Why can't they go here? And I'm just quiet um, because... I, I'm looking at the, one of the camps, and one of the people that runs that camp is somebody that I love, does a lot of things for the community, is a follower of Jesus, and I think they're awesome. Not only that, just a few weeks ago, we had summer swell in the exact same spot, <laughs> right? So I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> you know, when in my heart I'm thinking, hey, I, you know, block eight's fine. Like, I, there was a lot of things that I could have said, but, and you could say, well, of course, you don't want to be a, you know, there's no reason to get combative with somebody, and, and they're probably probably isn't, but the reasoning of why I wasn't saying anything or defending my friend that was on the beach or defending our position as a church, you know, having camps there every year for three days, um, is I didn't want to be uncool, you know? 
I was like, man, it's cool talking to the cool guys, you know. I don't want to be uncool. And then it just felt very, I mean, and I just, I thought, on a, that's a micro example to the, the, the way that we live as followers of Jesus because there's so many different conversations. There's so many different moments in which I think we've gotten way too comfortable just not expressing what we believe, not being honest about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we, we read portions of what it says in 1 John, that we should, we should love our brother and sister, and we should, we should be the, the banner of agape love to, to the world. And in many ways, we want to define what love means. And, and for us, in, in, in the world today, I think love means keeping our mouth quiet. Love means don't infringe on anybody else's belief. Don't make them feel uncomfortable by expressing what we believe leads you to life and what we believe leads you to death, what we believe God is leading us to and what we believe the world might be leading you to. I mean, that's, that's what gets uncomfortable. That's what's so important about the life course because it creates a safe ground where we can have open conversations full of grace on the front end. But every night, the truth of the word of God, we don't step around it, we don't bounce around it, we don't make it seeker-sensitive. But in the groups, as we have discussions, it's all about, hey, openly talk about what you have issues with when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the truth of God's existence, when it comes to the truth of who Jesus is, walking on planet Earth in the flesh, dying, bleeding out on the cross, and being raised to life by the power of God. Not stepping around any of the things that God says, this is the way that it works. This is the way that, that life works best. God created you and me. We were created by and for Jesus. Everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that we look up at and marvel at, he created it and he knows how it works best. But we live on a planet where we think we know best. And as I dig into this passage, you know, there's one area that kind of just jumped. This, this is one, I, I mean, this whole, if you go back and you should be, if you're reading along with this as a summer Bible study, first we're in First John chapter 5. If you got your Bible, you can open up. We're going to be in the first five verses. Um, I mean, we could spend, we could do an entire series just on this particular, just on not even the, all of the, the verses in this chapter um, because there is so much here. Um, but we're going we're gonna to look at kind of a transition that John, the author, makes and talking about our assurance. Like in, in all of this book, he's, he's giving us things that, that these signposts. Again, it's not, hey, if, if you are a follower or if you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you need to love people. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you need to do these particular things. No, he always comes back to the point to be a follower of Jesus is to believe in Jesus, to have faith, to trust him. You can't do it. He's the one who has done it. He did it on the cross. But he does give us signposts. He gives us theological signposts. What are, what are we supposed to believe? Not in just Jesus as a spiritual being, but Jesus in the flesh. He walked on planet Earth because that's what they were believing at the time. There was a lot of people that were like, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he was a spiritual being that just kind of moved about the earth. And he makes the point to say, no, you, this, that's not what we believe. We, he goes back to that we believe that Jesus was you know, born of a woman, that he was in the flesh, that he died in the flesh, but he was also divinity. And God, by the power of God, he was raised back to life. So John makes, he gives clarifying moments for the believers 
in the church at the time and for us to say, hey, there's, there's no wiggle room in terms of your theology. It's close-handed. It is what it is. What we believe about Jesus and what Jesus did is not up for debate. And then he dives into socially what it looks like for us to be followers of Jesus, how we love one another. He gets into that. So he goes and, he, and, he, and he, he's been breaking this down. So if you come off the heels of, of 1 John chapter 4, he's talking about if you don't love your brother and sister, but you, you say that you love God, then you're a liar. I mean, he's, again, dude's old and he's speaking the truth, right? He's not tiptoeing around it, doesn't need to. He's like, look, I've been around for a while. I know this is true. I've seen it work itself out in the church and in my life over and over and over again. If you say you love God, you say you're a follower of Jesus, and you hate your brother and sister, I'm not buying it. That's not, that, the signpost has failed at that point if you're trying to figure out if you're a follower of Jesus. There's going to be compassion. There's going to be empathy. There's going to be care for your brother and sister. The boundaries of race, the boundaries of culture, the boundaries of politics have all fallen to the floor in light of the blood of Jesus. So that's what he's breaking down in 1 John chapter 4. And then he, he says at the very beginning, verse 1 in chapter 5, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So he's saying, if you believe, this is the theological piece, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the fleshly man that walked on planet Earth, that he is not Christ-like or... He, I mean, because th th there was also people at that time that thought, you know, there's, Jesus was Christ-like. He was Messiah-like. He was Messiah-ish. And he's like, no, he is the Christ. If you believe that, then you are born of God or you're a child of God. This is the theological thing that makes us, when we believe this by faith, this truth, that makes us a follower of Jesus. And he says, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Now, what does he mean by that? Everyone that loves the Father loves his child. He's reiterating, if you love God, you're going to love his children. In other words, if you love God, you're going to love the body of Christ. You're going to love your brothers and sisters. He's using the familial language. He's using that whole idea that you are a part of something. You, don't, you can't hate yourself. And then he goes into verse 2. He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. So how do you know that? Now he's flipping it. He was saying, how do we know that if we, how we love God? It gets confusing. He says, well, now, how do we know that we love the children of God? And look what he says, by loving God. I mean, isn't it? It's circular, right? It's kind of confusing. He's like, how do you know that you love God? Well, if you, if you love the children of God, if you love your brothers and sisters, that's, that's how you know. You believe in the name of Jesus and you love one another. And then he says, well, well, how do I know that I'm properly loving the children of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ that I have? Well, that you love God. Come on, John. You know? It's like it goes back and forth. How do we resolve this? Well, he continues here. And I, and I, and I want us to see this because he's, he's making a turn and he's purposely giving you that circular logic so that he can throw this in and carrying out his commands. So he's more leaning not in loving God, but what it looks like. Like if you love your brother and sister, to, to know that you love your brother and sister is to obey his commands. One of the most loving things that you can do to love one another and love the world around you is to carry out and obey his commands. Love for God is expressed not only in how we love in return, but also in obedience. I mean, this is one of the harder, harder things for me. Like, this is how we know, obedience, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like when you, when you talk about, well, we exist to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus alone. 
Like, this is a grace house here, right? You can't tell me to obey. Like, that's what God wants from me is obedience, right? He's invited. I can't do anything. He's done everything. My sins, past, present, and future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. My righteousness was not bought by me and my obedience. It was bought by Jesus' blood on the cross. So why are we talking about obedience? Again, you got to remember, John is giving us signposts. But I have issues with this, like I said last week, because if you grow up and you miss this, you begin to think and believe that obedience begats your salvation. This is how you become saved. And then you've got somebody looking going, well, he must not be saved because he doesn't obey. Right? I mean, anybody, I mean, grow up in like religious circles, like super religious. Anybody, is that, I mean, does anybody grow up? I mean, if you grew up, there, there was a song that we used to sing in my school called Obedience Is the Very Best Way. Anybody? <laughs> Somebody laughs of laughter. Obedience is the very best way to show what you believe. Anybody? Doing exactly as the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. The joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show what you believe. O B E D I E N C E. Oh, sorry, you got a little excited. Obedience is the very best way to show what you believe. No, I mean the fair. Look, think about this. is This is where I, I struggle, right? What did Jesus do to the Pharisees? He comes, and these are the pictures of obedience. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. They were able to, in their own power, to obey, but there was no way that they could earn or buy their righteousness. So you always, again, we always have to come back, as we read passages like this, the biblical hermeneutics, which is simply, what? Interpreting the truth with the truth. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. we got to know what we know this doesn't mean. So what, what John is leading us to, just he's saying, look, your life is going to look different. As a follower of Jesus, if transformation has taken place, if you've gone from death to life, it's not that you're sinless. And he makes sure of that in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if you, if you start spouting off you're sinless, then you're a liar. I want you to know that right off the bat. We're all sinful. You can go back to Romans. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't like all of a sudden go away and all of a sudden you live a perfect life. It's that the door now is open to walk towards life. Where before you would always choose death. You would always choose you and your control before you knew who God was. Even your righteousness would be filthy rags. Even the good things and moral things you do on planet earth without Jesus, they're, they're just self-serving at the end of the day. They make you look good. They are pats on the back. Oh, I went to a foreign country and I served, not in the name of Jesus, but just in the name of whatever. That's just your own righteousness that, that bleeds back on you. Yeah, it's good for other people. But right here, he's saying, if you've gone from death to life, if you are a child of God, you will love other people, but you will also carry out his commands. In fact, the loving thing that you're doing is carrying out his commands, is doing what's right, leading people to the truth in the way that you operate in your marriage, in the way that you live life. He's not commanding you to do those things. He's saying, if Jesus has brought you from death to life, then there's going to be a desire to do these things. So he says, and this is how we know 
that we love the children of God by loving and carrying out his commands. Now, this is the good news and the thing that I love and the thing that made me go, okay, we got to dig a little deeper. In fact, this, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And listen to this, and his commands are not burdensome. I had to stop there and go, what are you talking about? Non-burdensome commands. I mean, when I think about a command, do we have any rule followers in here? Like, that's, I like rules. Rules, you know. Um, and who's the non, who's the one that parks in the no parking? Yeah, there's, you're not admitting it because you're worried the police will come in and take you away. Um, but to think about the idea that there's non-burdensome commands. So that's where we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at that and break that down. But if you continue, he goes on, he says, you want to keep his commands, and we know that they're not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. So he makes this transition. It almost feels a little rough, doesn't it? It's like he's talking about these non-burdensome commands, and he says, everyone born of, born of God overcomes the world. But there's actually a connection to be had here. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And he kind of completes this thought with, who is, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, immediately I begin to think, well, John is the writer of the Gospel of John, and, you know, John 16, 33, what does he say? He says, in this life, you're going to have trouble. And I think he's referring to that here. Like, you're going to have trouble. This is many, many years later, but he remembers Jesus saying this. You're going to have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And he's making this connection in verse 5. Who overcomes the world? Only the one that's put all their hope, lined up all their chips in the Jesus corner. So I got to ask this question, and really I, I think it's kind of the hinge that connects all these pieces together, and it's how are God's commands unburdensome? I mean, how is that even possible that they are? And the first thing that we have to do is we have to look at the word command, and it's the same Greek word throughout this passage, and uh, the definition is authoritative prescription, meaning this is coming from somebody in authority, and it's being prescribed to you. So the commands he's talking about, and when I think about and this is better for me, because when I think about commands, I do think it's burdensome, like somebody telling me something I've got to do. It's the way that I grew up in a Christian school, 15 years. It was all about, you know, these are the things you can't do. These are the things you can do. Now that you're a Christian, now you've, life has now been sucked out of everything, and you've got to follow Jesus. And Jesus is looking at you like, you know, you can't do anything fun. When in actuality, Jesus is the author of fun. He's the author of life. All of the good things that we experience are coming down from our heavenly father. He is the one that gives us everything that we enjoy. Everything that is good. Everything that makes you smile outside of sin. But sin's just a broken version of the beautiful gifts that God's given us. When it comes to sex, God created that. We broke it, right? Food, same thing. Every, you can go, we can go down the list. He's the author of that. I've always thought he's the one that takes us out of all the good stuff, and we have to be nice, clean, and tidy so that we make it into heaven. But the gospel doesn't work that way, and Jesus doesn't work that way. In fact, he comes and makes some, some clarities about even his commands, that they're not burdensome, that they're being prescribed by God because he knows something that we do not. And when you become a believer, that your eyes are open to begin to see the life in his commands. And, and you're, you're able to say what, what David said. He says, your, your laws are like honey. I mean, that, that, that just doesn't, when you put law and honey together, uh, it doesn't, I mean, 
But there's something that David realized in putting his whole heart with God about his commands, that they were being prescribed for his good and for God's glory, and that's why he was created. Your eyes are open to the wisdom of these prescribed commands. So how are God's commands unburdensome? I got two things, and we're going to be done. One is God's commands lead you to life and away from death. I mean, John 15 or 12, 50, if you want to look it up. They lead you, God's commands lead you to life and away from death. I mean, I thought about this today when I got up. You're just kind of ruminating on the, the, the talk for today. And I just thought, God's created everything that we know. Every, every concept that we know. Everything that we look at, we enjoy, we try to figure out on planet Earth, he knows the answer to those things. The intricacies of relationships, the way that, that, that sociology and psychology work, which I'm really interested in, the way that, that every, like mechanics work, the way that engineers work, he knows all the answers. The way, I mean, how does marriage work? How does friendship work best? How does the interaction between human beings work best? How, how does work work best? And all these things are in Scripture, and God is the one that, that knows best. God created it all and knows how, how it works. I mean, it would be ridiculous. I was a, 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 you know, a software engineer for years and years, and there'd be you know, modules that I would create and write for a company. It would be ridiculous for one of the warehouse guys to, to, to take that software that you create for a shipping package or something and they just take it, don't get any instruction, and they just start using it, and they, they're using it for the wrong thing. And they're, they're, they're saying to me, I, I know how to use this. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You're terrible. In fact, I would see guys do that. Like, you know, it's like hitting the button in the corner. I'm like, dude, you are ruined. The shipping cost is all jacked up. You have not connected this to this, and this isn't connected to this. And every time you ship something, you're losing about $7. And they're like, oh, man, I got this. I'm like, no, you don't got this. And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I wrote the thing. God created it all. He's the one that is prescribing it. He's the authority that says, I want to lead you to life and away from death. You know, I, I put commands and categories. In the, in the New Testament, there's Old Testament commands, the Levitical commands. And there's a lot of overlay in when we get into the New Testament because you... As Jesus completes the law, he doesn't abolish the law, he completes the law. There's a lot of things that don't have to happen because we don't have the whole temple system anymore. We have a savior. But then there's the, hey, don't be dumb commands. That's the one category. Like, just don't be dumb. Like, these are for your good. I'm not trying, it's like telling a child that's very young that doesn't understand that, hey, sticking the thing in the light socket, probably not a good idea. They don't understand at the time. They're like, that seems like a really good thing to do and fun and awesome. And you're like, it's not. And you just have to trust. And then you get older and your eyes are open. You realize, oh, that's, that's not good. I mean, you think about, I mean, just look at some of the simple, the simple ones, but the harsh ones that were like, okay, that, that makes sense. Adultery. Don't commit adultery. There's nobody that uh, you know, goes and makes the statement, man, I cheated on my wife and it went awesome. This was, fa this was the best idea I've ever had in my life. No, at the end of that, and you know story after story after story after story after story where it's gone wrong. Like husbands given to one wife, that is, a, that is, that is smart, Wives having one husband, smart. I mean, you can watch a Netflix Mormon special if you want. 
if you don't believe me. Look at the dude that's got three wives and 25 children and see if he's happy. I'm just telling you, he's like, yeah, one would have been great. I mean, he's just thinking, you know, like this would have been just one. I mean, ladies, could you imagine if it was the other way around and you had three husbands? I mean, holy cow. I mean, he knows how it works best. He, he knows. I mean, in scripture, there's no, like drinking alcohol is not forbidden in scripture. So it's one of those things that there's a lot written in scripture about it. Like there's, you know, drinking wine to the glory of God, like appreciating who God is and what he can create in those moments. But drunkenness, there is a command in the Old Testament and the New, don't get hammered. And, and it's, not, it's not that this, you know, this is God's just trying to keep you from having fun. Look at the disaster all through scripture of drunkenness. There's not one good story. Oh, this guy got hammered and it went great. Nobody is like walking in their life going, you know, and they're like, man, my life was terrible and I was just having a hard time. I was walking through depression and doing this. And then I just started, I just said, you know what, I'm gonna, drink. I'm gonna get hammered a lot. And I started getting hammered every day and things went great. I started doing amazing things. I invented something. No, it doesn't happen. Because God is the one, he's, he's telling us for our own good, leading us, to life, leading us to life and away from death. Gossip, talking behind someone's back. I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, this is something that we need to talk about in the church a lot. Because we talk sideways so many times. A part of it's our uncomfortable nature of addressing people directly. But part of it's just our sinful nature. That we're... we're vying and jockeying for position and friendship or our frustration because somebody got something that we didn't like or we, we have our own idea of who we are and who they are and we wanna put everybody on our side and put everybody against them and there's just sideways talking. It's never, not one time in, in, in life has it gone well talking sideways. I mean, you have a conversation with somebody and they said something to somebody about somebody else and then they find out that they know. They're terrified. They're like, oh, I didn't know they would find out. Like, how did you think they weren't? You're talking to them. It goes, it, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I sit, and this is gonna make some of you nervous, like, oh my goodness. I sit in my office and people come in to tell me something and I have to say, I know. I've heard it from five different people already. And it's so sad that it comes around that way. And God's saying, hey, this, it doesn't work good. This, you go directly to them. Have a conversation in that confrontation, in this moment. Crush the enemy is what he's saying. He's like, the enemy would love to keep this thing going in the chain of gossip, in the, in the brokenness, in the assumption, in the quiet places. He would love to destroy the church in this, and he would love to destroy your marriage. He would love to destroy your friendships, but you can eliminate it with honesty and truth in face-to-face -face conversations. And that's God's law. And he didn't put it, it's the don't be dumb command. Don't be dumb. He doesn't say it that way because he's much more graceful than I am. But that's the, I say that, it's the thing I have to say to myself, like, Derek, don't be dumb. Look, it's right here. These unburdensome commands, he's not trying to burden you, he's trying to free you. He's saying, don't walk in slavery. You, you used to walk in slavery. Now I've opened up the doorway to light. You've gotten that by, the, by the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. You can walk in the direction of life. Don't walk back into death. There's slavery. 
For freedom, Christ set you free. Don't submit again to that. That's all he's saying here. He's like, it's possible for you. And for a follower of Jesus, this would start to happen. Humility. It's, I mean, there's probably, a, a, in terms of commands across, it's like a, it's at the top level of this affects all the other stuff. Like it affects gossip, it affects adultery, it affects all of pride and humility. Be humble. I got country songs I could sing about it, right? You, you, you can't, I mean, and it's the best thing for us. I don't think there's anything that's better for the soul than descending instead of ascending. If Jesus was able to descend, look at Philippians 2 and lead us in that. He's saying, this is the best place for the church. This is the best place for you. Trying to jockey for position, trying to, to always be in the position where you're right and everyone else is wrong. No, descending in humility. And I'll tell you what, humility in general, in life, in your job, it opens doors. It cre can create leverage, like true godly humility in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Humility is unbelievably attractive to the outside world, to the world that doesn't know Jesus. If the church could figure this out, the people in the church, pastors in the church, if we could figure out humility, people would, there would be a magnetic, like they could say anything they want about it. Man, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about this. But I can tell you what, these are the most loving and humble people that I possibly know. And there's this vortex that's just coming. They don't they have no idea that it's all Jesus. It's not about our humility. It's about what was born by the blood of Jesus, that the doorway to darkness is still there and we can walk in the way of pride, but the doorway of light is now open and I can walk in humility. And guess what? It's gonna open doors for me. It's gonna create leverage. But more importantly than that, it's gonna glorify God. It's gonna be good for me and it's gonna attract people to me. And I, I get to take that because of the gospel humility that's been birthed in me because of the blood of Jesus. And I get to reflect it and say, no, no, no. you have no idea what God's done for me. And you get to point to the one that created it all, that did it all, that is saving it all. So God's commands lead you to life and away from death. And then you've got commands that lead you to purpose. Like this is why you were created. I always say this, Colossians 1, you were created by and for Jesus. All things were created by him on heaven, earth, everything that we see, including you. You were created by and for Jesus. And in that, you have not just the, you got the don't be dumb commands. Now you have the don't waste your life commands. There's all uh, the commands saying, this is what you do with your life. Now that you, you are a follower of Jesus, do you just go back to life? Well, you might go back to your career, but your mindset is completely different. Now you have one singular purpose. You were created to glorify God. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Now that you've received this ministry of reconciliation, what are you doing? You're carrying this amazing news that Jesus saves and nothing else does to the world around you. You're gonna be ambassadors. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. What are you gonna do? You're gonna disciple people. You're gonna lead people. You're gonna baptize people. You're gonna, you're gonna teach them to walk in the ways of Jesus. You're gonna lead them away from the dark doorway into the doorway of light that Jesus bought with his blood. Matthew 28. You're gonna give your entire life to God, Romans 12. You're gonna sacrificially, because of God's mercy, you're gonna give your life away. And you're gonna be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you're gonna be a beacon of hope for the world around you. God's commands lead you to life. He's leading us to the place to trade the small things for the biggest thing. 
He's not doing something. These unburdensome commands, he's not doing something to, to put a weight on your shoulders. He's saying, look, you can take all those burdens and put them on my shoulders. A burden, that's easy. I got this. He's saying, but I want to give you something. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you the ability to trade in your small, insignificant life. And he's not saying it to be, to be mean, but he's saying, look, you can live for yourself. You can create a little kingdom called Derek's kingdom where you've got little pieces to your puzzle and you get to play there. And it's, that's fantastic, but it's small and it's not what you were created for. In fact, it's going to lead you to death. But there's something that will lead you to life, and it's to step out of that small story, trade that in for the only life that matters to be a small player in the grandest story of all time, the one that leads the world to life, the one that leads the world to repentance, the one that leads the, the human race that's around us to the only truth that matters. He's saying step out of that and step in to this. And to do that, it's not going to be easy. But the grind won't be such a grind because you'll know what it's for. You know, I thought about even that, that whole process. Like at what point is the suffering, the hard work not burdensome? And the only, I mean, I apologize if you're not a football fan, but you do live here in Jacksonville. Um, and I know our football team's not good, but we still cheer for them. And it's amazing. It just says, you love football. Um, but I, I remember just growing up playing football. I remember I, got, I was injured my freshman year, didn't get to play my sophomore year, and I jumped in my junior year. And the coach was, he was a great coach, came from the college ranks to coach our high school team, um, and he had a plan. But for whatever reason, it did feel burdensome. Like he just said, execute these things, and you know, we'll win. And we had an amazing athletic team. Uh, and we were terrible. Went two and nine. And I didn't like my teammates. It just was, I, it just, it was, it was just bad. Everything about it was bad. I was a running back. I mean, that was a mistake. I mean, I could run fast, but just in straight lines. And that was easy for everybody to tackle them. You know, just bam. Um, and then the following year, we didn't have nearly as good a team. I mean, just athletic ability was, I mean, my buddy was the quarterback and he wasn't good. I mean, he was all right. Um, and then my other buddy, he kind of, he looked like Brian Bosworth, but he didn't play like him. Um, and so we, got this new coach, um, and he, he knew where we were talent-wise, and he just inspired us. We worked way harder and basically said, trust me, if you do these things, if you grind this way, if you move in this direction, you're going to win. I mean, he guaranteed us. He's like, you are going to be victorious. You're going to win. All you have to do, he said, this isn't about trying to figure out how to win. He says, just trust me. Walk this way, do these things, and we will win. And then we did, game after game. And we, we were all like amazed. And then I would be sitting in class knowing I'm getting ready to go to practice where I might throw up because I was running so much. And I had butterflies, not because I was nervous, because I couldn't wait to get out there and sweat and hit people. And feel that, like there was, you were going to feel pain. You were going to run like never before. You were going to be exhausted. You were going to vomit on the field. You were going to get dehydrated. You were going to bleed on the field. But you couldn't wait to do it. It's this unexplainable thing. But there was such vision for what was to come. 
And it was victory after victory after victory after victory. And our team, the, 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 the unity of our team was out just this magical thing. There was nothing like it. We knew we weren't going to lose and we knew we weren't that good. We just knew that there was some magical thing that made us work harder than the other teams. And I, I say that because Jesus has laid out exactly what John's saying. If you look at verse five, he's, he's saying, put your faith. If you want to know where the victory comes from, it doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put all of it there. Put all of your chips in with him. And there will be joy in the suffering, unexplainable joy in the suffering. And that's how you overcome the world. Verse five, it says, who is, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. He's saying, if you trust in him, then you will be able to overcome the world. And that's the big question for me in any, in any day. How do I overcome the world? And what I mean by that is life is not easy in general. We live in a, on a planet where there's brokenness, there's hate, there is cancer, there is dying and death. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful and beautiful things too, but if you live long enough, I've said this many times, you're going to bleed, you're going to lose someone, you're going to feel heartache. How do you not get taken, knocked off your horse? How do you carry the banner of Jesus in faith when that's happening? How does it happen? And I started thinking about this and, and it's an interesting illustration, but it, it does kind of work. Some of you know that uh, we're renovating our house. Most of you probably know. And uh, we've been out of our house since January. And it's, what's happening is, is amazing. Like I've complained you know, from time to time about the process, um, but it's pretty amazing. And people have asked me over and over again in this process, like, are you okay? Are you fine? And I'm like, I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. And I feel bad as a pastor, I've always thought, you know, I'm not gonna have a nice house. You know, I'm just, the pastor shouldn't have these glorious houses. It's really not about that. And I don't care that much about it. And now I, it's like, I almost wanna hide what's going on over there because I'm like, it's nice. It's just, what they're doing is nice. Um, and people keep asking me, are you okay? You've been out of your house since January and suffering and just doing whatever. And I'm like, I'm fine. It's like, you haven't seen what they've done. They've gutted all my plumbing and replaced it, gutted all my electric and replaced it, gutted, gutted all my AC and all my vents and taken out all the mold and done. They've literally renovated my entire house. New floor. I mean, everything's new. I'm like, it's shocking. And people are asking me, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, would you do it again? Oh, yep, I would. <laughs> Signed up. I'll do it again. Now, is it a grind? Yes. I've been living out of a Lexan box about this big since January. I'm a dude, so it's fine. But the ladies, that's like tough. But people keep asking. In fact, they asked to, they, they were making an adjustment that we were really happy about. And they said, we're gonna, it's gonna extend your whole thing for two more weeks. Is that okay? And I'm like, I will sleep in a tent. And I say that because we're talking about life renovation, death to life in a glorious future that we can't possibly imagine. And the basis for our suffering, because it's not easy, walking through the fire, is that we're untouchable when we're connected to Jesus. 
when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when we, when we in any moment feel like this is a grind, the, the, the readjustment of understanding the gospel that he poured out and gave away his life, everything that I needed in assurance, everything I needed in righteousness, everything I needed in approval, love, belonging is satisfied in Jesus and my relationship with him. And I have a glorious future. Death is no longer the end of my story. So what can you do to me, enemy? How can you overcome me? You can't. I know what's coming. There's a home renovation happening. It's happened in my heart, and I'm headed to a glorious future. It's going to be okay. How are you going to I'm going to be fine. And it's not about keeping your chin up and ignoring it and saying it's not happening. No, it's happening. Cancer, walking through it, brokenness, sadness, losing people, the devastation of life. Yeah, it's happening. And I'm mourning when it's appropriate. I'm dancing when it's appropriate. But I'm walking in victory, not because I've won everything, but he has in the cross of Jesus Christ bought me and owns me and loves me. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love that you've given us your word that you've opened our eyes by the power of your spirit to see something that makes us victorious, not for our own edification or building up, but for your glory. Because it glorifies you, it is good for us. God, I pray that, that we have a house here of untouchables, not because we've done something right or good, but because of who you are and the truth and the fearlessness you've pushed into our hearts by the gospel. That you've defeated death. Just come Holy Spirit, just lead us in Jesus' precious name.